All right. How are you? Good. How you doing, Andy? I'm hanging in there. I had a weird couple of hours, but I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good. Oh, great. Great. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm honored. I'm truly honored to have you here. Um, I was telling my team, oh my, oh my God, like when we first wanted to do this, oh my God, is he going to do this? You don't think I was weird or anything like that? But no, no, I'm, I'm thankful that you're here. Thank you so much. No, this is great. Thanks. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, we have quite a few people in the room. So ladies and gentlemen, this is Tony Trujillo. Am I, am I pronouncing your name right, by that's the way? A, that's right, Trujillo. Yeah. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, he is a professor at um, Columbia College of Chicago. He has 12 books that are out. And what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about Elise Cohen. We're going to talk about the Beast Generation. We're going to talk about his works as well. And we're going to have fun with this. So, um, for those who don't know who you are, I guess if you want, you can start. We'll start with, you know, tell me a little bit, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself more, be more expansive, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Um, as, as Andy was saying, I teach at Columbia College, Chicago. Um, I've lived in Chicago for about 12, a little over 20 years. And uh, um, I'm a poet and a scholar and a musician. And uh, uh, my poems tend to be, you know, influenced by, a lot by the New York School poets and uh, by, by uh, you know, some of what the Beat Generation was doing also. And uh, uh, I have a big soft spot in my heart for William Blake, uh, and uh, as a scholar, wow. most of, yeah, he's one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, and as a scholar, most of what I research has been uh, beat generation literature, beat generation poetry. Um, so it's really cool that you've, you know, uh, we're, we're 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 working with both tonight. Um, right, right. And that's yeah, that's probably about all. You know, I, I live in the north side of Chicago by Lake Michigan, and. And uh, man, it's been a tough weekend for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. But how is it over there? Like, has it been crazy on your end too, where you're at, or, or is it a little bit more controlled? No, it's been um, it's been pretty uh, pretty intense here. Um, my neighborhood. There's been demonstrations. We're we're a pretty politically active neighborhood, and uh, it's on the oh. it's called Rogers Park. Uh, really, really good. I love. It's a real community, and. Uh, uh, but man, what's been going on in downtown Chicago, the loop, the photos I've seen, the city is burning. Uh, we have a curfew. Um, it's six wow. o'clock here. So like when we end tonight at eight, I go out for my walk and I'm going to get in just before the curfew. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Just what we're oh, living man. With now, you know? And, yeah. And Even then, New York was even New York was crazy too, actually. Um, I mean, I live in New Jersey, but I'm okay. originally from New York and it's just the stuff I've been seeing. It's just, it's just very ridiculous. And you know what, like, yeah, I just, I guess just hope and believe that, you know, we're going to be okay at the end. It's, it's just unfortunate how things just turn up, you know? I know it's the thing. Like I even, even like talking about the curfew tonight, one of the reasons I mentioned it is so I don't forget, like I'm not used to living under curfew. And I have to remember, like, okay, you know, things shut down at nine. Right. But you know, this is—I—I I, I agree with you. Like, we just have to hope we can get through it. And I'm really glad that people. Um, I'm really glad that people are active. You know, I mean, that, yeah. that they're, you know, they're remembering George Floyd and everybody who's been who's victimized by police brutality and and speaking yeah. out. People gotta. People got, you know, we have to do our, whatever our part is, as long as we're doing our part, I'm glad we can do that. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting you say that because now that 
now we could, we're going to get right into it. The sure. beat generation, you know, it seems like that's exactly what they were trying to do too through writing as well, you know. And um, I want to, you know, point out some things that, you know, caught my eye as I was doing the research. You know, I know the focal points of that generation was the rejection of standards, which is the society, the spiritual, uh, making a spiritual quest, rejection of exploration of religion and economic materialism explicit portrayals of human condition you know we were just talking about that you know experimenting with drugs and marijuana lsd and allen ginsburg was definitely one of those core figures informing that beat generation so you know with that being said um my first question is when all of this took place because from and correct me if i'm wrong i believe this is from like after world war ii am i correct yeah mm-hmm mm-hmm so that was a very interesting time because um, I guess well, my question, my, I guess, uh, so my first question is, what was a factor that allowed this moment to form? Like, what was it that happened that said, okay, we're gonna do this? Like, what was that? That's a great question. Like, what was like, what was, uh, what was the button that got pushed? That kind of question, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, I think there's so much that was going on, but I think like to try to, try to put it in a nutshell, like, I think a lot of it had to do I'm not just saying this because I'm an educator, but I think a lot of it had to do with education. I mean, you had a lot of folks who were, um, this was after World War II, after the GI Bill. You had a lot of folks who um, were able to go to college who couldn't afford it before, and they were getting turned on to a lot of great literature, but they were noticing, I think, that they were getting turned on to a literature that wasn't speaking to their moment, you know? It was speaking to the past, mm. and um, the beat writers, I think were the ones who, who were, you know, they were, they were like on the, on the forefront, they were at the vanguard of just saying like, you know, this, the world looks, the world after World War II, it looks really peaceful, but um, there's still, you know, racism and sexism and classism. And then there's the nuclear bomb that could destroy us in, or the, the, at the time, I guess the atomic bomb that could destroy us in a second. And I think that, you know, they were in different ways. I think they were able to focus on, like, okay, it's great that we're living in peaceful times after World War II, but America is still a colonial power and that's not cool. And, and uh, it's, gonna, uh, um, it's gonna bring a lot of suffering into the world. And I think, wow. I think it was just that moment where things were peaceful enough for people to hear it. Well, it wasn't all peaceful, but I mean, there was no, World War right, II was right. over and people were exhaling. But I also think there were just a lot of people who were able to go to college and like take a lot of, um, courses in the humanities and just sort of like it was feeding something in them that they weren't you know cause a lot of people it, it weren't it wasn't open college hadn't been open to people it was feeding something but I think they realized wow it's feeding something in me but there's something missing and the beat writers right. provided what was what was missing that's that's my effort to sort of I mean there are probably another, a bunch of other ways to say that but that's right. one path in I think yeah okay no that's that's powerful that's definitely powerful indeed and i think that and it's just that i think uh, the way from what you told me the way i understood that from what you're saying basically it looked like america was sugarcoating they were masking <laughs> some things trying to hide some things where we don't get exposed but it seemed like the beat generation writers eventually said no we're going to expose this and we're going to do it through our work we're going to do it how you know the way we're gonna do it, but without the craziness. But it, it, you know, there's so many scope of things that took place with that. So um, it's interesting you said that because this actually leads to uh, another question. So everyone that 
was part of the Beach Generation. Do you believe they were declaring change and or they were they predicting the future, meaning like change as in, okay, if it, we don't want no more of this, let us be ourselves, or do you mean, or, and or was it prediction as in, if this does not stop, it's going to get worse. And if you stop listening to, you need to start listening to what we're saying. Otherwise, it's going to get crazy from here. And I wonder, you know, with everything that's going on now with the George Floyd, it just makes you wonder now, like, were they predicting? Like, was this, like, were they predicting already what's going to continue getting worse if they didn't stop? Do you think it was either or? Do you think it was both? I, I think it was both. I think that's right on what you're saying. I think it was both. Like, I think there was... There was this real effort among the beat writers, the 1950s, the 1960s, 1970s, you know, to say like, here's, here's the big, here's a big gaping wound in America that no one wants to pay attention to. And we're going to ask you to pay attention to it in our writing, because maybe we can build a better world from it. Yes. And I, and I, but I think also, like you said, there was also kind of a warning, like, like if we don't, um, we could be doomed, you know, and I, I think that like Gins, Allen Ginsberg, for instance, one of his um, one of his most powerful books for me right now is called The Fall of America. And it was from the mid 1960s. And when I was, you know, several years ago when I read it, the fall of America sounded like a metaphor. And now the kind right. of world we're living in now, I'm like, wait a minute. He meant it really. He meant like if we don't like you were saying, if we don't do certain things, America's going to fall. And I think he'd be looking at what's happening now and um, uh, weeping and also thinking like, oh man, this is, this is what I was afraid of. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so like, so like with that being said, like if Allen Ginsberg was alive today, what do you think he would say right now? If he was alive right now in this moment, seeing all this? Yeah. I think he would do, I think he'd be writing poems about it. And I think he'd be going to demonstrations and writing about the demonstrations I also think, and this was, he had, this was some of the things as a, Ginsburg as a public figure that really inspired me. He inspires me as a poet too. But one of the things okay. he did as a public figure that really is like, he just knew how to listen to, um, listen to other activists and artists. And as he got older, that meant listening to the younger generation and just, and just saying like, okay, you're, you're, you're like, he would like say if he was 60 years old, he'd be like, okay, you're 30 you've grown up in a different America than me. Tell me what it's like and I'm going to listen. And I think that's why he would, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, he was teaming up with punk rock musicians when, when punk rock was so weird to people and so bizarre yeah. to people. And, <laughs> and I think it was probably kind of weird to him, but he recognized there was an activist impulse and that it was youth culture. And I think he recognized, man, I got to listen to what, to what the, the younger folks are saying. And I, I think he'd be, right, right. he'd have poems to write, but I think he'd be listening too. Right, right. No, absolutely with that. Because um, when you talk about punk rock, I also think about the L.A. punk scene. Oh, man, Los yeah. Because that was a crazy time. And I, I've seen that documentary, um, Decline of Western the Civilization. Decline of Western, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. But that was such, oh, my God, that's such an eye-opener for me because it just gives me a whole different perspective of, wow, you know what? There was a lot of these people who went through worse than I did. And it's like, wow. You yeah, know, it's it's crazy, but it wasn't just okay. They were homies. They were doing drugs. They were listening. To no, it was like a movement. You know, it was a movement. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Mm. 
Oh my goodness. No, this is exciting. <laughs> oh, this is great. I love, right. I love that we, we started talking about the beats and now we're talking about punk rock. Let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it is funny because this first piece I'm actually going to read, um, it links up to everything you just said. Um, so this is from Brian.Edwards.Live. So everyone knows him as Brian Edwards. Um, he's a very big um, inspiration to everyone in the poetry community. Um, he's very real. Um, down to earth but like he tells it how it is and he's very like he like like Allen Ginsberg he wants to see what else goes on okay I'm older you're younger but I want to so see what it is I want to lift you up too you know when it comes to the poetry community so it's just um I have an honor and privilege in um getting to know this guy right here so um there's no title to this piece so I'm gonna read this um a little bit kind of long but you know it is what it is um all right let me just pull this up here and then we'll get right to it. All right. So it goes like this. It mattered to him since where it was that he came from. Justice came with a bloody blade cutting off your hands if you got caught stealing. Children must be taught a lesson even if they're starving. Then when you're older, judgment comes swifter as heads are severed as a warning in the middle of the East for all the people to witness. It would have mattered to her as the headlines read how she dishonored her family by posting a picture of her with her fiance a day before their wedding. Her death, her death, I'm sorry, wait, her death certificate said suicide, stating she jumped out of a window, yet nothing was ever mentioned how her body was covered in bruises because, so they say, honor killings don't exist anymore. It mattered to his family when they scorched up the money so he could move to the States from Nigeria. Now it's his turn to bring his brothers and sisters here to America, knowing that knowing they may never see their mother again. She said that their lives are more important than hers, yet every day he catches shade in the hood for the color of his skin because they say that he's not black enough to live here. It matters to those who snuck across the border from South America to provide a better life for their children because it's safer to watch the violence on TV rather than living it in person every time they step outside their front door in the country they ran away from where the cartels outgunned the local government. It matters to him that his elderly parents have actually to have an actual ceiling above their heads because in their country, you were considered lucky if the roof you slept below was stolen from a dumpster or a construction site at night after you paid off the security guard to look the other way. As a mother, it mattered to her when she was on a missionary trip to a third world country and she saw a small child running bare naked down the street if she left the group to go save him, she might get kidnapped, beaten, raped, and murdered just so a young man can prove his loyalty to a gang, just so he can feed his family. If the world was blind, no one would mind because everyone looks the same. If the world was deaf, no sound would be left to hear the voices place the blame. It's like what Mother Teresa said one day, I would never attend an anti-war rally if you have a peace rally, invite me. She didn't care about color, where you were born or what religion you were raised because to her, all lives matter. 
Oh, it's great. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, you're welcome. And that was by Brian Edwards. And um, I, I feel like that piece alone just confirms what we were already talking about, you know, and, and I think what it is too with that generation, the beast generation to relate to it, it seemed like before that time, they were conditioned to live a certain way. And then it's like, okay, now that you're growing up, you're seeing things from a different scope. It's kind of like, no, 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 you're not allowed to see that. No. And, and, and that was wrong at that time. Cause I guess like at that time frame, everybody lived a conservative way, everybody lived a certain way. And I'll say this on my life. Um, you know, I, I come from a Hispanic cultural background. So anyone from that time frame, that Hispanics, um, you know, we were conditioned to be a certain way because like, like, like if I try to explain to my parents about the stuff we talk about today, they wouldn't understand that. It was like, you know, our emotions were not allowed. We weren't allowed to be a certain way, talk a certain way, or walk a certain way. We had to be whatever they say, and that was it. And it's just little did they realize later that, okay, but if we, you know, not that we, we didn't mean to second guess what they're saying, but we were questioning because, okay, but maybe this is not right anymore. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It was right at one time, but it might not be right anymore. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all right, no, so um, I guess if you want to read a piece now on your end, and then we could take it from there as well. Sure. Um, should I, I'm trying to remember the order. Should I read read from Elise Cowan's work or my work at this point? I can't remember. No, it's up to you. No, no, it's up to you. Whatever is, you know, whatever is organic to you. Okay, okay. Uh, well, you know, since we're talking about the beats right now, I'll start with uh, uh, a poem from Elise Cowan. Um, okay. And it's one of her shorter poems. And um, maybe I should say a little bit about Elise's, her life first, maybe, or, or is that okay? Or yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, go ahead, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, did you wanna, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I'll just say, um, um, one thing I, I did just from re when I was doing some research about Elise Cowan, um, there's not a lot about her. And uh, one thing I noticed too, is she was very overshadowed, like she was overlooked. Yeah. Now my question is, was she overlooked by Allen Ginsberg? Or she was just overlooked as an overall in general because of the short life that she lived? Because, um, yeah, because unfortunately, um, you know, she committed suicide, yeah. Yeah. you know, due to the depression stuff she went through. So I feel like we would never get the chance to see exactly all the stuff that she was talking about. Because one thing I noticed, she did go through like some mental health issues. Yeah. She did struggle with identity. And I think it goes back to what I was saying about my parents, you know, like we grew up in this whole being conditioned to be a certain way because of the culture we come from. Exactly. And it seems like with her, it was like that too. Um, one thing I learned about her was that she was comes from a Jewish background. Yes. So you know how it is with them, you know, and I live in, a, I used to live in an area where there's a lot of Jewish people too, and they're a certain way. So they isolate themselves away from people like you and me. And then, yeah, that's just how it is. And Elisa's family, um, she grew up in Washington Heights, New York. Yeah. Um, she was born in 1933. And as you were saying, she came from a, a, a uh, she was uh, from a Jewish family and, you know, there was a particular, I think her family had a very particular conservative, uh, I shouldn't say conservative, but, you know, a very, a particular, very limiting way that they wanted their daughter to be. They wanted a particular daughter who was a particular way, particularly traditional in a way that like, what well, you know, like in your family might be, you know, what would, what would be a Hispanic traditional womanhood. And for my family, a traditional Italian womanhood and for her family, like 
a traditional Jewish girl. And, and that meant, you know, someone who would, who would assimilate into the larger culture, who would, who would, you know, have a, you know, be married and have 2.5 kids and, and uh, two cars right. in the garage in the suburbs. And she wanted to be an artist. And it didn't fit, they didn't fit those categories at all. And, and growing up in the 1950s for her, there were so few opportunities to be an innovative avant-garde female artist. And she was innovative, she was avant-garde, she was a woman, and that kind of made her scary and dangerous to people. And so, right, right. like when you asked, was she overlooked um, by Allen Ginsberg? Yes, yeah, sadly, I and mean, I love Ginsberg's work and he's a very inspiring writer for me, but I do, and he was a very politically active person, like we were saying, but he had his own limitations. We all have our limitations. And one of his limitations was with women. He just, he'd be in a room and he would see men, but he wouldn't really see the women. They weren't as visible to him. It was, so there was, that was his particular, you know, we have all of our isms baked into us and his particular form of sexism was, he just saw men before he saw women. And right. she, they dated for a very short time during this period where Ginsburg was experimenting with heterosexuality and um, eventually their dating didn't work out romantically and they stayed friends. Um, and the problem was that I think he, you know, he did overlook her, I think as a writer. And I think he, he was probably very, from what I've been able to gather in my research, he cared for her as a friend, but he also was kind of complacent about their friendship. And I think their friendship meant more to her than it meant to him, even though he was mm. her friend. Um, but it's sad because he was a, he was a poet who was really good about promoting the work of other poets. He was almost like, right. he was almost like the literary agent for the beat generation. And he probably could have drawn out Elisa's poems more and promoted them more, but right, right. I think he overlooked her as a writer. And then her response was, well, I'm not gonna show him my poems then. You know, I'm gonna keep them to myself. And mm. so it was this terrible cycle where she was writing great poems and she was in a progressive left-wing community but they weren't progressive enough to not be sexist. And so she was writing great poems, but because she was a woman, even her fellow artists weren't hearing her the way they should have. Yeah. Damn. It's kind of a long wow. answer to your question, but yeah. Right. No, no, no. I definitely understand that. Um, I know when, because I know he struggled a lot with his sexual, his, his homosexuality, Ginsburg did. Early on, and, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. And then here's the part I'm confused about. Sure. So. Because there was a part that I saw where she was, um, like she she ended up getting pregnant and it had the abortion. Now, what Allen Ginsberg was the one that got her pregnant. Uh, got her pregnant. This thing I don't understand. I'm a little confused about that. No, he he was not. Um, there was uh, um, so much of her history is is uh, sadly is mysterious because there was just um, she she was overlooked so much in life that there's a lot we still don't know and. When I talk to other researchers, we often try to say like, we'll patch together like, what happened during that period when she was in Berkeley? What happened when she was in, right. uh, uh, what happened when she was in upstate New York and things like that? And so she, um, uh, she, she tried to get the abortion in when she was on the West Coast. And um, I think it was, from what we can gather, probably the Bay Area, although I've talked with other researchers who said maybe it was Los Angeles. Um, it was shrouded in mystery, um, except what was not mysterious was they 
um, the, the doctors performed a, a hysterectomy on her. And so it was, it was like medical brutality, you know, and, and, and in a period where wow. abortion rights didn't exist, where it was, you know, it was, it was, uh, uh, like it was forbidden basically. Yeah. Uh, back alley underground and really dangerous and really, really dangerous. And so, um, but yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the thing like so your question about her trying to get an abortion. It's a really important question to who she is as a person, but like a lot of things I found out when I was doing, I, I edited this book of her poems, Elise Cowan poems and fragments that I'll be reading from. And when I was doing research on her life, um, it, it took a long time to do the book because there's just, it's really hard to get the facts. There's a lot of misinformation and a lot of blank spots, sadly. Yeah. Right. Right. Wow. No, that's wow. Like, you know, it just gets you speechless, you know, and it's just yeah, like, wow, know. you know, and it sucks, you know. Um, I know one thing I, I found interesting about her too was that when he finally, um, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced his name, Peter Orlovsky, am I pronouncing uh, that right? Orlovsky, Orlovsky, yeah. Oh, Orlovsky, you know, when he eventually became partners with her, she tried to impress him with her partner. Now, was it with um, someone named Sheila, if I'm not mistaken? Sheila, yeah, yeah. But yeah. even with that, like you said, it looks like, even that, it was like, okay, cool, whatever. But like, he went about his business regardless of like what 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 Elise Cohen was trying to do to impress Allen Ginsberg a lot as well. Yeah, there was uh, in terms of the relationship between Elise Cowan and Allen Ginsberg. I think that you know he was just going along with his life. They were friends, and they looked out for each other when they could. And right, and Elise was um, really close with the Orlovsky family. Um, but it was, you know, Ginsburg met Peter Orlovsky right when he and Elise, right, right around the time that they stopped being romantic, and right. he fell in love with Peter, and they became life partners, and so wow. Elise and Alan and Peter were close, and then when Elise met Sheila, Elise and Sheila and Alan and Peter, you know, there was there was an effort to, um, you know, I think they, they were all friendly, they were, acquaintances, and, okay. and, and yeah, good friends, part of a community, yeah. Right, right. No, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, no, so if you want to, like, read, I guess, a piece now from, you know, Lise. Sure, sure. And this is a, um, this is a shorter poem. Um, you know, when I, when I was putting the book together, I tried to look at, like, themes and patterns in her poems, poems to try to figure out how to organize them in the book. And one of the most powerful themes, and, you, you know, you mentioned that she was brought up in a Jewish household. One of her most powerful themes is her effort to work against traditional patriarchal religious systems. So, um, you know, she was Jewish, but she was also interested in, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And she was always trying to find ways to mix together different kinds of religious traditions and really to talk back to the uh, patriarchs of, of our wow. religions. And um, this is one of those poems that talks back nicely. Um, huh? Oh, and I can, I can cuss, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, we all, we always, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. Okay, so I can, I don't have to, I don't have to censor Elise Cowan. I'm very happy. Okay. No, 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 Yeah, yeah, this is all down and dirty, raw, straight to the point. That's cool. all it is. You I, curse I just, whatever you want. <laughs> I didn't want to be, a, I didn't want to be a bad guest, you know, so. Uh, no, uh, no, 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 it's all good. <laughs> so this poem is called, um, Dear God of the Bent Trees of Fifth Avenue. Okay. Dear God, and at least count, dear God of the bent trees of Fifth Avenue, only pour my willful dust up your veins 
and I'll pound through your belly flat worlds in praise of small agonies. Suck sea monsters off Tierra del Fuego. Fuck your only begotten cobalt dream to filter golden pleasure through your apple-glutted heaven, filter through the uncircumcised sin of my heart. Wow. Wow. It's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Wow. That, wow. That, wow. No, I'm wow, glad you like it. It's, it was one of the early poems of hers that when I read it, my reaction was similar to yours. I was, it wasn't the first poem of hers I read, but it was like the second or third. And I was like, right. wow, oh my God, this is great. great wow. Story. But you know what's crazy? Because like, like I, I, I'm thinking about how people write poetry today. I'm like, wow, but really think about it. It hasn't really changed at all in a way where it's like, wait, people still talk like this even to, from that time, even to this very day. And yet again, it goes back to the overlooking part that it's just like, oh man, like how do people miss that, you know? I think you're right. That's right on it. It gets to that overlooked part, like you said. Like when when I was when I was first putting the book together, you know, I was living with these poems for for years. And I, you know, I didn't want to get stuck in my own head. I loved the poems and they sounded really contemporary to me. They sounded like they were written now rather than 1959, 1960. So I was, I was um, sending some of the poems out. Oh, I saw a question I want to answer in just a second from the, from the chats. But uh, I, um, okay. I was showing some of the poems to a lot of contemporary poets from today. And I was like, what do you think of these? And they, and they the, almost universally, they said, um, uh, this, this sounded like a poet from the 21st century, not from the 1950s and 1960s. And I felt so wow. good because that, that's how I was reading her too. Um, but uh, I saw a question in the in the chats. Um, yeah. Someone asked, um, "Is the book out?" Um, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, yes. It's uh, it's a bit. This is what the cover looks like, and it's um, it's out through um, Asada Press. I'll spell it. It's A H S A H T A. So it's there, and you can find it used on Amazon, used on ABE Books. I think you can find it used on Bookshop. Um, the, the bummer, the problem is um, just this year, Asada Press, the book was published in 2014. The poems were written in 1959 and 1960, but the book was published in 2014. And what's a real bummer is um, Asada is, uh, was funded by Boise State University in Idaho. And like a lot of universities, uh, uh, Boise, also book depositories, another place to buy it too. Um, Boise State has been defunding a lot of their arts initiatives. And what's really a bummer is they, they defunded Asada Press. So right now, um, the book is officially, as of six months ago, it's officially out of print. You can get it used, though. And a lot of libraries carry it. And I'm working on getting another publisher for a second edition. And so fingers crossed, within, within a year or so, there'll be a second edition with a new introduction. And her poems will be out there again. There's just... Sadly, right now they're only it's only used, but hopefully, really soon uh, will be a new edition. All right, no, that that's good to know. Yeah, because when I try to look for it, but oh, yeah. I know it's expensive too. Yeah, I know I it's, know. it's like hundreds of dollars for that because it's so rare print now because of what you just said. Yeah. Um, just a real quick, I want to tell. Yeah, guys, um, if you have the latest 
Instagram update, there's a question box on the bottom of the screen next to the comments. If you have any questions you want to ask him, definitely use that um, use that feature. But you have to have the latest update of Instagram, guys. Just keep that in mind. Because I know a lot of people had problems when I had another guest there um, a couple of weeks ago. So it was just mm. weirdness. So I had to stress the whole update to Instagram thing. All right. So... Um, all right, so the next poet I'm actually going to read now from the community, she goes by evening underscore poetry. Uh, I believe she is in the room. I'm I sorry, no, no, it's, un, it's, yeah, it's evening poetry. I'm sorry, not underscore. Sorry, I'm thinking about somebody else. It's evening poetry is the poet that um, I'm going to be reading next. And there's also no title for this piece as well. So, um, yeah, so I'm going to read this now. So, all right. <clears throat> Four thin strips upon her leg. The world was never meant for her. Four thin strips of pure crimson marking down all the things too big to ever be said. She was here and now she has left. Sadness twirling in her tresses while brokenness hovers like flies. Because the scars she's been so good at hiding. Well, they're beginning to show now. And there's no victory in that. She is through Painting alcazars in the sky, fingertips trailing down slowly, down the window, while changing suits of poignancies, caught glimpses in the reflection, fitting properly, perfectly, exhibiting bruises like badges, life measured in losses, another brutal beating, another holocaust, another lie, tacked to the wall, leaving her stripped, just blood and sinew. Who knew that shadows took up so much space. Who knew that even darkness wore a pretty smiling mask? So they came to cut her up, to poke, to prod, to hear which sound came from which wound to watch. Graveyards danced in her eyes. The satin magnolias fall again. In the dusk of August shell shock, a life of daybreak, gargling rivers from the dew drops of aged honeysuckled whiskey. And the metal where railway spine scream bread idol is where she dwells, where she dances like China and runs like tea as cherry floret grows onto the curvature of her spine. Some call it heaven. She calls it pennies and nickels because isn't that what we're saving for? And she is gone. Leaving a trail of mangled butterfly wings and cut off clippings of paper dreams. And no, she won't ever go back. Instead, she wastes her time pulling out maps, tracing fingers overblown and, I'm sorry, over brown and yellow dots and plots of land, trying to see where the great desert inside her begins. And that is by Evening Poetry, and she goes by Eve. Wow, thanks, Eve. That was that, that, the way the... Uh... Boy, the the uh, the way the body just goes through so much in that poem—it's really powerful. Yeah, yeah. All right. No, I definitely agree with that. Um, just looking at so quick. So, all right. So, um, so earlier I was talking about how Elise Cohen remained in love with him, with um, Allen Ginsberg, even for the rest of her life. So. What was it about Allen Ginsberg that attracted her the most about him? Like, was it his presence? Was it how he spoke? Was it his intelligence? Was it 
the passion that he has to prove the point and to create the change through the literary works. Uh, like, what, what was it? You know, because again, I remember early saying that she went as far as trying to impress him by developing the same-sex relationship of her own too, you know? So I wonder, what was it about him? You know, yeah, I think um, probably my, my sense of it, someone else might have a different response, but my sense of it, I think, was um, his intelligence and um, his, um, his, you know, he, he, can, he can write like, you know, if, if you know a poem like Howl is a very justifiably angry poem. And, and a lot of times people know Ginsburg through the anger, the really righteous, you know, necessary political anger, like we're talking about with the demonstrations this weekend, like people are pissed off for very good reason. And Howl is one of those poems where you think this poet is really angry for good reason. But if you look at his whole body of work, he was also a really tender poet with a really um, just sweet, tender way of trying to draw people together and reach to the heart in his poems. And I think that's part of what attracted her to him, that he had this enormous intelligence, enormous curiosity, and a really big heart. Um, and I think also the other thing that attracted her to him is that he was one of those people, we all know folks like this who are just, they're an agent of change. They just draw people to them and they, they, they connect other people. And when something major is changing in the world, they're like at the center of gravity for it. Wow. And I think she was drawn to that in him. It was a, um, a real, he was a kindred spirit in that way for her. Again, even though, like we said, you know, he would, he would look past her because she was, she was a woman. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was still the kind of community that would give her more space than a lot of other communities would, even though it wasn't giving her the space she needed, for sure. Wow. So you could so it's safe to say that because of this, um, she basically um, she suffered with um, what you call like not, I'm sorry, not su suffered. She she struggled with low self esteem then because you know sometimes when something like that happens, you develop low self esteem, and sometimes putting yourself out there or speaking up sometimes becomes difficult because especially when you respect someone like let's say Allen Ginsberg so much, you don't want to tarnish the friendship that means so much to you and then with that being said too you know so i wonder with that being said what i wonder was she also in denial of the fact that okay this is what's really going on or do you think she was still hopeful okay maybe maybe he'll won't neglect me as much like what do you what's your intake on that yeah that's a really good question um i think um i think um you know to be to be as well you know yeah to be as, as concise uh, as possible, because I could go on and on about this, to be as concise as possible, I think that she, um, it was just one of those situations we've all experienced in our lives where I think she, she, um, she fell in love with him, fell deeply in love with him. And I think, I think he loved her, but not, not, not with the same passion that she had for him. And sometimes when you're in that situation, you know, okay, I better just walk away. And sometimes bye, you're in that situation bye. and you think, well, maybe if I give it a little bit longer, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll match up. And, um, right. and so that's just a normal, like I see that as a normal human response. What's really sad is a lot of critics and scholars and historians of the beat era, you know, the ones who wrote about Allen Ginsberg and wrote about Elise Cowan, they would portray her as kind of like um, only focusing on the fact that she developed schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, 
as best you can tell from the diagnosis, the diagnoses I know are kind of fluid, but um, um, people would focus on that and they would think, oh, well, she must have been mentally ill and she was a stalker. She was portrayed as if she was Ginsburg's stalker. Right. And, and I don't think she was a stalker at all. I think she was- No, nah, I don't think like, so either. How many times have we all done that? You're in love with someone, they don't love you in the same way, but you're not willing to give up, but you're not stalking them. And uh, right. I, and she was, and she loved him, and she wanted to be friends with him. And they, you know, they maintained and cultivated a friendship. And had she lived to um, an older age, I think they would have been even deeper platonic friends, probably. Right. No, I definitely agree with that. Definitely, definitely. All right. So, um, you know, because I'm just checking on the time of the clock. Oh. All right, we still have time. Yeah, as far as the first hour, then Robin jumped in the second hour. Okay, so, that's right, uh, that's right. Yeah, so I want to make sure as well, I'm, I'm getting through the pieces as well, because <laughs> it's just so exciting. Like, oh, I want to keep on going, you know, but um, no, so if you want to read another piece of hers. Yeah, sure. Know, how about, um, how about if I read a little longer poem? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, that should be fine. And it's not really, it's not like, uh, it's not like uh, a book or anything. It's just like a couple pages. I want to find the page number. Okay. Like, uh, like I said, one of the, I was trying to, one of the things I was doing when I was organizing the book is I was trying to find like themes and patterns and organize it by themes and patterns. And one of the themes was um, poems that were in, inspired, of course, by beat writers. She was inspired by the beat generation. I could read one of those later maybe, but right now I wanted to read a poem. One of her most foremost, like strongest influences was Emily Dickinson. Okay. And, uh, this is a poem called I Took the Skins of Corpses, and it's a mashup of the style that Emily Dickinson used, these four-line stanzas with a ballad kind, a bouncy ballad kind of rhythm, and um, uh, but also mashing it up with the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein story. Um, okay. And there's a real fierce kind of feminist through line in this poem, I think, that like, you got Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but then Mary Shelley's mother wrote a vindication of the rights of women. And then em Emily Dickinson had a fierce feminist sensibility that it took critics a long time to really notice. So it's kind of all of that in one. And uh, it's one of my oh. favorite poems of hers. Um, so it's called, I Took the Skins of Corpses. I took the skins of corpses and dyed them blue for dreams. Oh, I can wear these everywhere. I sat home in my jeans. I cut the hair of corpses and wove myself a sheath finer than silk or wool, I thought, and shivered underneath. I cut the ears of corpses to make myself a hood warmer than forget-me-nots. I paid for that in blood. I robbed the eyes of corpses so I could face the sun but all the days had cloudy skies and I had lost my own. From the sex of corpses, I sewed a union suit. Esther, Solomon, God himself were humbler than my cooch. I took the thoughts of corpses to buy my daily needs, but all the goods in all the stores were neatly labeled me. I borrowed heads of corpses to do my reading by. I found my name on every page and every word a lie. A machine from bones of corpses would play upon my human love. The only sound the keys would make were hissings of a dove. 
I dug among the endless graves. I thought my time well filled. The mirror giggles when I look. I'm bald and blind and quilled. I thought the corpses vital that the risk involved ensured the stuff that I had taken be precious marble pure. But when tempted by a heart, replacing it with small jewels, I found it bloodied as a mind and mine become a ghoul's. Now, when I meet the spirits in whose trappings I am jailed, they buy me wine or read a book. No one can make my bail. When I become a spirit, I'll have to wait for life. I'll sell my deadly body to the student doctor's knife. Wow. <laughs> oh my God, wow. It's one of my favorites of hers. And she, re she revised, it was the one poem in her notebook that she revised more than any other. So I think it was a poem that was really important to her. So it feels, wow. feels good to be able to read it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, so there's a there's a poet on this community called Dreadful Artist, and she actually writes like that. That's so, oh my God. Oh, that's, that's exactly great. what I was thinking about. And um, wow. I, I love the imagery in that piece. Like, that is, wow. And it's just interesting, again, like, I can't believe people actually wrote like that back then. Because I thought that style was like something recent, like, you know, like like early 90s and stuff like that. I thought that was all new, but no. And one thing I thought about was probably like Marilyn Manson, because you know, if you look at his music, he'll that certainly sounds like something he would write, but yeah. in music. So it's so interesting. Like, oh man, like no, that goes that style was way before that. But was really that like, like that. forbidden? Was that forbidden um type of style of writing back in that time? I think, you know, it's 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 I think if you were a guy, anything goes. And, and, and you know, in the, in this was like in the late 50s and early 60s, if you were a guy anything goes in terms of subject matter and form. But I think as a woman, I think the anger and um, just the, the pissed off person that's in the middle of that poem, the speaker, the pissed off narrator, I think that kind of anger was, if not forbidden in women, I just, I think like mainstream critics just didn't want to touch it. They were just like, no, nope, not going to do it. Um, right, they could right. touch it from a man, that'd be cool, but not from a woman. And that's part of what well, I like it. about the poem is she's like, I'm going to write it anyway. Yeah. Wow. No, that's amazing. That's a <laughs> no, thank you for sharing that piece. All right. So the next piece I'm going to read, it is um, his username. Um, I hope I pronounce it Reservoir Summers. That's the that's the username on here. But he goes by Sam Thomas and it's called Cup glass that's the name of the piece pill to tongue little white absolute cure silence 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 phone won't stop shut the fuck up hands drenched and shaking almost as much vodka on the floor as there's in my cup glass that could work too why even bother cleaning up someone else would have to how many are even in here never mind I'm not tired yet. Phone lights up. Buzz, buzz, buzzed. Not enough. Names on the screen, whatever. They'll all be fine. Another. Pill to tongue. Another one. Go to sleep, Sam. Text, call, text, call. Buzz, buzz. Stop. Her. That fucking name. Do what you gotta do. Just to spite her. 
finger to tongue, I have some calls to make. And that is by Sam Thomas, that piece. Oh, that was great. Thanks, Sam. Uh, uh, I was just, I wanted to write <laughs> down that last line. I have some calls to make. Yeah. <laughs> I really like the wow. like, text, text call buzz. I have some calls yes. to make. technology that's just sort of like raining in on you in the poem. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. He's, I just started to get to know that person actually. And I, as I read his pieces, I'm like, wow. So when he had, um, I saw this piece, I was like, oh my God, I have to read this piece. This was such a, oh my God, piece. I, um, I'm actually going to read another piece only because I just saw, we have 10 minutes left and I want to make sure I get to everybody's piece. And then we could, I guess just finish the rest of the conversation. Just, you know, talking about more about Lise Cohen and stuff like that. Sure. So the next piece is from Sandra. So she goes by S. Rudick Dar. That's her username. And she goes by Sandra. Everybody, she also does lives with the first poet I read, Brian Edwards. These two together, when they go live, it, it's just always fun. And it's always just lifting everybody up. Just like like you said about Alan Ginsberg, always just lifting up everybody, you know? And that's I think that's definitely important, you know? All right, so, presumptions of you, thinking, thinking I want you always on top, in control. No, let me take the rein. Let me, let me be your top ecstasy as I hold you down, as I am the one to pin you. Let me be the one to pin you, arms above your head, me gliding, rocking, riding, until you say, is it my turn? I smile slightly, releasing your arms, not removing the hold my body has on you. Legs slowly move. I spin carefully on top, rising just enough. Ass now facing you, just like how you like, just how you like it. Gently teasing my wet drip. I'm all yours, I say. As you grab my ads tightly, grandly, I'm, I'm sorry, gently, boldly. I move in rhythm. I move, you move. As we fall out of control, uh, what just happened? I'm sorry. Out of control and give in to the moment. And that is by Sandra. Oh, that's and great. This Thank piece, I'll tell you why this piece caught my eye. I, and when I, I literally saw Allen Ginsberg and uh, Elise Cohen together. I'm going to tell you why. Because I wonder if, like, was this the kind of, you know, sometimes there's just some things you just can't talk about with somebody because unfortunately due to the circumstances, it's just kind of hard to just really talk about. So I wonder, like, I think she wanted to, to Elise Cohen's head and say, this is, this is what she probably would feel like if she was like, but she couldn't tell Alan this. So this is what she felt inside. That's the way I took this piece. And this piece really blew my mind when I read this. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's a good question thinking like, what would, if she, uh, uh, what was it she really wanted to tell Ginsburg but didn't? Because you're right, there's always something, you know, the one thing you just can't tell, that secret thing in the back of your mind. Yes. I, and I don't know what that would be, except, you know, um, I mean, I'm thinking of that poem by Sandra, the way that traditional top and bottom male and female roles get turned around and and yeah. she's like you know let let me be your top let me be the one to pin you down and and, yes. and i really like the force in that and um i don't know if elise would have wanted to tell him that maybe but i know that that was 
that kind of gender fluidity, the fluidity of traditional gender positions, it really appealed to her. So I think I think she would find a resonance in that poem for sure. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. That that's whew, man. Again, I'm just excited to even talk about all of this. Um, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, no, so do you have another piece you want to read from you know, Elise Cohen? Yeah, it's really funny because I, I, I had a couple choices, you know, I had some notes like which one should I read and then when you were reading Sandra's poem right now about shifting gender positions, it got me thinking of one particular poem of hers and also one thing about her life that I didn't mention and I, I'm surprised I didn't get to it just because we were going on to other things, you know, but right. Um, one of the things that makes her so mysterious and makes her history so mysterious is that, you know, she was a, like so many writers, she was an obsessive writer. She kept journals, she filled notebooks with poems. Um, but her, when she died, she committed suicide in mm, 1962. Yeah. And when she died, her parents found her notebooks and they were mortified, they were outraged because in her poems, you know, she's part of the beat generation. So she's talking about drug experimentation, but she was also talking about um, what we would call today, you know, gender fluidity or um, bisexuality or pansexuality. I mean, she, she didn't identify as, you know, in a, she didn't identify in any kind of heteronormative way possible. And she, you know, like in the 21st century, we, we know that there, there are more than two genders. And, uh, but for someone like Elise Cowan, she was stuck in this world that you had to be male or female. You had to be, yeah. you had to be straight. And if you were gay or bi, those were, you know, you had to keep that secret. It was, it was, it was actually considered treasonous in the McCarthy era. So what her parents did, her, her parents were so upset by the sexual references and the, the fluid um, heterosexual and lesbian material in the poems that the, the, her parents' neighbors burned all the journals as a favor to the parents. And this book wouldn't exist except for one of her friends, Leo Skurs, oh, saved yeah. one notebook. <laughs> and so this is oh. why it's a very short poem, but it kind of gets at that issue of gender fluidity, I think. And it's a, yes. I also think it's a beautiful poem. Uh, it's called Someone I Could Kiss. Okay. Someone I Could Kiss has left his her tracks, a memory heavy as winter breathing in the snow and with weight and heat of human body. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's very embodied wow. poem with, with many yes. different bodies. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. No, I love that. And I, again, I, I think this was perfect the way, like the, because I had a certain order originally when I was to read the poems, but I think the order I read it today was perfect and it, it aligns with all that. And it, it worked really organically. Really I think. Yeah. Yes. And um, I gotta say, so I was gonna, and that's funny because now my next, my last question I was gonna ask, because sure. I have one more piece, which is my piece, but it's okay. It's oh, we can hear your piece too. Yeah, I'll, I'll, no, make a, I'll give you a quick answer. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, because I only have three minutes left anyway, so it, it's fine. Um, okay, okay. So my question was, it was about Leo Skirt. So basically my question was, well, what, what my first question was, was that the only notebook that he had that exists? And how important was Leo Skirt to Elise Cohen as far as her works? Because that had to have been very important because if it wasn't for Leo Skirt, who, we probably would have never heard of her, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 
Elise, the fact that Elise Cowan has a readership now, she has readers, she has an audience, um, you know, this book helped that, but this book wouldn't exist without Leo's skirt. So you know, she has an audience because of Leo. Um, and that was sadly the only notebook, as far as we know, it was the only notebook. It was because it was saved only because she had been temporarily, she had been staying with a friend of hers uh, in New York, Irving Rosenthal. And she, she left the notebook in Irving's apartment by mistake. And Leo found wow. it after her death. And Leo recognized, oh my God, I have to keep this. And if, her, if, if, Leo, if Elise's parents find out, they might try to destroy it. So he hung on to wow. it. Um, so Leo, to answer the other part of your question, he was very important to Elise. The weird thing is, like, like I said, like these poems wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Leo. What's also sad, though, is that he had a kind of ownership sensibility about her work after a while, a kind of proprietary sense, so that um, he, he, got, he got a number of her poems published after her death in individual journals. And he often talked about, well, I've got a collection of her poems. I'll try to get them published. But he never really tried very hard. <laughs> so he, oh, kinda, wow. he would hold on to them. He had a kind of tight ownership of them, but he really didn't own the poems. They were owned, um, you know, by Elise's heirs, you know, and uh, wow. those were okay. the people I worked with on the book. So, so on the one hand, you know, thank you, Leo Skurb. We wouldn't have these poems if it wasn't for him. But he also held on to them a long time, and I really wish – he right. would have published them 30 or 40 years ago and we would have known right, longer. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I have a couple of seconds left on this clock, but Tony, uh, I'm going to hand it over to Robin and thank you so much for joining me and, and joining us for doing this live. Um, so Robin, we'll see you in the second hour. Thank you so much for doing this and thank you for everything you have done for Leeds Cohen and to the Beats Generation community. So um, God bless you, and um, I'm going to hand it over to Robin now in the next hour. God bless you. Thank you so All much. Right. Thanks, Andy. It was really great. Here we are. Hello, Robin. Hey. Hi. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. Boy, that was such an awesome first hour. Oh, my that goodness. Was that was, yeah, that was awesome. That was really cool. So, oh, my goodness. Like, so many things. I was, like, trying to write down notes. I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know this. Oh, my gosh, I didn't know this. So it's oh, all very, cool. very exciting. Yeah, yeah, super cool, definitely. So, um, but yeah, you feel, you've been, you know, feeling it out, getting comfortable, enjoying everyone's input. And, uh, oh, this is great. It was, it's been good. great talking and, and hearing the poems. It's just been a nice mix of everything. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, it was, um, one thing I was, I didn't know that Mary Shelley's mom was a writer. I had no clue. I yeah. didn't even know. So that is awesome. That is incredible. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we actually, I had a live um, that I did a couple weeks ago with um, Mel. I'm going to read a piece of hers tonight, too. But we decided that we were going to, you know, we're like, you know what? Let's just read some classics. And, you know, let's pick out, like, some of our favorites. And even though it wasn't poetry, but I pulled out an excerpt from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And um, so I actually ended up sharing that. Which oh, that's cool. cool. Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> great. I'm glad the convergence <laughs> happened tonight. That's excellent. Yeah. 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 So yeah, so that was like, that was amazing. That was, that was super cool. But uh, now you're a musician. I'm a musician. And uh, so I did, uh, I did, I have to say, I, I YouTubed your bands. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was this, uh, Pet Theories? I, I the, um, it was the other one. I YouTubed, oh, uh, yeah, the Larry of the Drummer for, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, Drumming on Glass. Drumming on Glass. Yes. When I had black hair and I had more of it, man. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so that was fun. That was some. That was fun. You guys had some. That was some intense music. You guys had some good sound going on. Oh, thank you, thank so, you. Yeah, that it was, was fun. It was. It was uh, uh, they were amazing musicians to play with. I, I miss them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm so in a guys, cool band now called Bummer Deluxe, but we don't have anything on YouTube yet. So don't have yeah. anything on YouTube. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're just working on our first recording. Yeah. Oh yeah. well, hey, that's exciting though. It so, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you did get to tour a little bit though too. Yeah. Yeah, with Drumming on Glass, we did a, a, a nice tour for our first album. And, you know, I live in Chicago now, but my, my first visit, we were, we were from Boston. My first visit to Chicago was on tour. It was like the, the best way to see a major city was when yeah. like, you're, you're playing at one of their nightclubs. You know? yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now, did you get to write any of the songs? Yeah, did some of the well we all we all contributed to the arrangements and the musical songwriting and then I yeah. did I did some of the lyrics. Uh the mm -hmm. the um are there any on the first album? I think the lyrics I contributed. Oh yeah, there's um two of the songs on the first album I wrote the lyrics for and then the second album I didn't play on it, but I wrote mm -hmm. I think two of the songs on the second album too, two of the the verses. That's of the lyrics. awesome. Yeah. Very, very cool. Very cool. Well, I I'm not as groovy as you. I'm a classical pianist and so yeah. <laughs> I'm a little bit I'm a little bit more structured. Yeah, I wanna I wanna play the piano though, I wanna learn. So I, I think that's really groovy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So good. I can be groovy too. Absolutely. <laughs> We're both groovy. <laughs> All right, very cool, very cool. Awesome. But no, um, so I was absolutely fascinated with, um, we talked a little bit when we did our Zoom meeting and everything, but I was so fascinated with your book series that you did of, um, of the, the Dark Shadows, right? Yeah, yeah. I, and so basically the, the entire series, all three books, correct? It's all in poem, it's all one poem? Yeah, except it's it's actually, um, it's ongoing. Like I'm writing, I'm writing the fourth book now okay. and it might be, it might be eight or nine books if I live long enough, but yeah, yeah, right now there are three published, like you said. Yeah, yeah. That is amazing. So now it was also inspired by you had said a, like a soap opera that you grew up um, just in the in the generation. Yeah, yeah. I um, when I was really small, like you can't see where my hands. <laughs> Stay at home mom, and we would we I'd watch TV with her every day, and and I was yeah. a little kid, and she loved soap operas, so I'd watch all the soap operas with her, and this was in the late '60s, and there was one soap opera called Dark Shadows, mm -hmm. and it was like every other soap opera on TV where you know people would fall in love and fall out of yeah. love and be yeah. really melodramatic, and I loved all that. Yeah. But this soap opera, the main character was a vampire, a 200-year-old oh. vampire, and um, he scared the hell out of me. And every <laughs> night, well, almost every night, I'd have these nightmares about this vampire and the same recurring nightmares quite often. And um, I wanted to write about that my whole life because I'd watch yeah. it every, the show every day with my mom and then I'd have nightmares. Yeah. And it wasn't until about nine years ago I got this idea. Yeah. And uh, so what I'm doing in a nutshell is I'm watching every episode of the show mm -hmm. i'm writing one sentence in response to each episode and it's um i use that sentence to kind of write my autobiography so it's um i think of it as an experiment in autobiography i talk about yeah. the show but i talk about my life um and it's a lot of fun yeah it's it's also you know um i can't believe i'm still doing it but it, you know i yeah. knew it was a long project i knew it was yes. like 20 years so yeah here I am. <laughs> yeah that is awesome there's like 
quite a few people that even recognize the name of the show. So that's yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of people saying <laughs> yeah. that they've liked it or their parents watch it, which is excellent. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I never, I never did. I, I hadn't heard of it, and so, but when I, when I um, heard what your project was and how you were going about it, I just found that completely. I was enthralled with the idea. I was just oh, like, that's no, great! I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. So that is very, very cool. Well, since Andy had to, he cut off. Um, I wanted to make sure that I that his piece was read. So Andy. Oh yeah. Is it okay if I read your piece, Andy? Give me a thumbs up if you're cool with that. Unless maybe he wants to save it and he wants to share it at a later time. <laughs> and if that's the case, I totally respect that. But. You better say something, Andy. I'm pulling it up right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sure he'll be fine with it. Yeah. Be good. Oh, there he is. Okay, there we go. okay got it. All right. Okay. So, uh, so yes. So this is a, the Andy Morales, and this is his his piece, and it is called "Why Do I Bother." Okay. When is it right to be right? When is it wrong to be wrong? And when is it low to feel low? When is it enough to feel enough and why do I bother? When is it okay to hide within myself and when is it okay to love myself and never return? When is it okay to cry and never get judged? And when is it okay to lose my sanity? Why do I bother? When is it okay to say yes and when is it okay to say no? When is it okay to say maybe? When is it okay to overthink? Why do I bother? When is it okay to say no more? When is it okay to want no more? When is it okay to say anything? When is it okay to want anything? And when is it okay to do anything? Why do I bother? When will I finally be taken seriously? When will I finally get to talk? When will I finally win an argument? When will I finally not be interrupted? Why do I bother? When will I breathe again? When will I smile again? When will I stop feeling embarrassed about myself? And when will I finally admit that I have schizotypal personality disorder? When will these labels stop making me feel less human? And why do I bother? So when is it okay? When is it okay? When is anything okay? When was any of this okay? When was any of this all okay? And why do I bother? Why do I bother? Leave me alone. Why do I bother? Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Why do I bother? Leave me alone. Why do I bother? Leave me alone. Mm. That was me, Andy Morales. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> oh. Yeah. That was yeah. awesome, Andy. And again, just totally, completely proud of him for, you know, for writing that and for stepping out of his comfort zone. Because I know that there were some, you know, some hard, hard truths for him in that, you know, to be able to admit and, you know, and embrace, you know, where he's at and to share that with everyone. So that is, that is really awesome. So yeah. Bravo to you, Andy. That was good. Right on. <laughs> I really liked that, like that repetition of when is it okay? Why do I bother? And as I was hearing it, I was like, it's so great that, mm -hmm. that you're bothering, you're writing the poem. There it is. Yes, you know? and, absolutely. And like keep bothering. This is good. Yes. You know, I was, I was, yes. That's what I was thinking as I was listening. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, I love it too because I feel like there's so much of him in there, you know, so much mm -hmm. of the time he's just like, oh, I'm so sorry, you guys, my thoughts are sporadic. And we're like, no, 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 this is you and this is who you are. Yes. It's okay. And I love how he just really embraced that part of himself and he just put that out there for us to just, uh, to just enjoy and see a real piece of him. So I yeah, you know, right so, on. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. So, um, so now what did you, so you started writing obviously pretty young, so you're always interested, um, you know, because you're a you know, professor, English professor of uh, creative writing and, um, and English at Columbia. 
Oh, sorry, Columbia College in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so now, did you start, you know, your works and things prior to becoming a professor, um, you know, at where you're at now? Or did that, which one came first? The writing or the, or the, yeah, yeah. the profession or the writing, which one came um, first? The writing came first and, and it was, it was uh, um, um, a real, uh, um, I'll use the word obsession, but in a really good way. Like it was a real obsession. My, 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 my obsessions, my biggest uh, uh, obsessions growing up were making music and writing. And so mm -hmm. I feel yeah. totally lucky I can do both as, as an adult, yes. you know? And, yeah, um, yeah. But it was just an obsession and it was just like any art form, you feel like you gotta do it. You just have to write and and, mm -hmm. and you're not gonna feel good in the head if you're not writing or, or if, if yes. what you're writing doesn't, is, is you don't like what you're writing. Yeah. So it's what I always did and um, I, uh, I felt really lucky when I was an undergraduate in college, I, I uh, took a poetry workshop class and I didn't even know poetry workshops existed. Yes. I was the first person in my family to go to college. So I was like, I didn't know you could do this. <laughs> yeah. and, and then I loved it. And yeah. I thought, wow, like you get yeah. your work critiqued and they, you know, everyone's helping you with what's working and what's not working. Mm -hmm. And I just loved that so much mm -hmm. that I was like, well, I want to write because I, I want to make other people feel what I feel when I read good poems. Yeah. And then, yeah. After I started taking poetry workshops, I thought, well, maybe I want to teach because um, I feel so good in these workshops. Maybe I can make workshops that will make students feel good. And yes. so it's sort of, they worked hand in hand, but the writing came first. Yeah. Yeah. That is awesome. That's amazing. So now, now that you've gone through, like, you know, so for me, I am not a, I'm not a well-versed like poet. I'm just, I, I didn't even, you know, I never even considered myself a poet prior to even coming on here and being introduced to this, um, you know, writing community. Um, you know, I never, you know, took those courses, you know, in college or anything um, in that regard. And so I always just, can, I always called my writings rants. You know, I'm like, oh, I just rant. <laughs> you know, I just rant, I just rant. Yeah. Now, uh, do you find that you are pulled more towards more structurally sound, um, you know, poetic forms? Or do you, are, are you okay with like, there's, I mean, loose form is so out there nowadays. I mean, it's yeah. all over the place. I, you know, I, I like, I like traditional forms. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've, I've written sonnets, I've written villanelles and sestinas. I think they're really cool. Mm -hmm. um, I like, but I like to work in traditional forms with a voice that sounds contemporary, you know, mm -hmm. sounds like, you know, it's the 21st century. Yeah. Um, but I think ultimately at, at my deepest core, I'm drawn to poems that sound like the way people really talk. Mm -hmm. And so if I feel like, you know, like the poet Frank O'Hara once said, he, he thinks of a poem as like picking up a phone and calling a friend. And mm. those are my favorite kinds of poems when I feel like the poet is just picking up a phone and calling yeah. me and we're, we're talking like two mm -hmm. regular human beings. And it's shaped like a poem, you know, it's shaped in its right. own way. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but, but I, I like poems that sound like, like I like to write like I talk and I like it mm -hmm. when other people are writing like how they talk. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Would you want to read uh, read something of yours? Because I, yeah. I would love that. Sure. Um, you know, since we we're talking about dark, dark shadows, um, maybe I'll read uh, I'll read a poem from the new book. Um, uh, so this is book three. As Robin was saying, it's called Ghosts of the Upper Floor, um, and uh, it's published by Blaze Box Books. And I'm really I have to do a shout out to my publisher, yeah. uh, uh, Jeffrey Gassa. He, um, when I first pitched this project to him, mm -hmm. I said to him, look, I know this is going to sound really weird. And uh, he listened to it and he said, 
this is amazing. I want to publish all the books. And I was oh, like, that is so cool. You're the best. And he yeah, is the best. Well, thank you. Thank he you takes very much. such risks in his, in his books. <laughs> and, and he's a great poet himself, too. So, yeah. um, so it's, uh, you can get the book on uh, the BlazeVox website. Also on my Instagram page, uh, on my profile, you can click the link. Um, so I explained the book. I explained earlier how I'm watching Dark Shadows, writing one sentence in response to each episode. You really don't need to know who the characters are in this this is a short prose poem, uh, except Barnabas is the vampire. Uh, there's a guy named Joe Haskell. Um, you don't need to know much about him, except he, he looks like the kind of guy in the 60s who would beat up hippies. Uh, <laughs> but he's a nice character, even though okay. it's just my projection. Uh, and, um, and oh, the other thing to know is that when I was a kid and I was afraid of Barnabas, I would go to bed and I would hunch my shoulders at night because yeah. I would think that would protect me from getting bitten. Oh, that is so funny. Yes, like this. Like that. And then I'd wake up and I didn't have any vampire bites. So I'd be like, well, it must have worked. It uh, works. Uh, <laughs> was my logic. Um, and so I wrote this, uh, this prose poem in book three. I wrote this um, on the uh, anniversary, the 15th anniversary of 9-11. Okay. And it's untitled. Uh, His fingers wrapped in a decadent grip around the looped handle of his wolf's head cane, his black onyx ring on right pointer finger. Barnabas Collins slaps my childhood bedroom window with an autocratic snap of the wrist, shattering the glass, at which point my memory of this recurring dream wavers, a glitch effect, the dream space fractured in sheared horizontal pieces like images from a broken analog television. As I toggle between my 1968 vampire nightmares and episode 615 tonight, the 15th anniversary of 9-11, the camera zooms on Barnabas's hand, his fingers gripping Joe Haskell's glass medicine vial. The close-up resurrecting my childhood fear that I'd wake up in the middle of the night without my shoulders hunched. And the last thing I'd ever see would be his right hand, elliptical onyx surrounded by gold band as it brushed away my collar to expose my bare neck and jugular. A fear that triggers a body memory of the excruciating bottom right molar throb that kept me awake the Friday before the attacks, that by the following weekend, one day after the airports opened again, required an emergency root canal. The endodontist couldn't numb me, and she had no choice but to drop the anesthetic directly on my inflamed nerve. <laughs> shocking pain. Oh my God. Even saying it is shocking. <laughs> shocking pain that lasts just long enough for me to remember that I was terrified. Her office was in a high rise. Oh, Two weeks wow. later, I stopped mm -hmm. meditating. Didn't mm -hmm. for more than a year because mm -hmm. of phantom tooth pain. And every time I sat on my cushion, I put myself into those planes. Oh, wow. Wow, you didn't just take in just the, it's just not the haunting of Barnabas, but wow, to be able to, 
to to take in just the the you know you place us back to you know your fear of here you were in the dentist's office 9-11 had happened and there's so many other fears that are that are just flooding your brain <laughs> oh i'm so sorry that you to deal with the shock of well, thank you. And, and that, that is part of what's fun about the book is like weaving all those strands yes. together. Yeah. And that's why it's, it takes so long to write too. Cause oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, of course, you know, and I'm sure uh, many also caught this, but I love the black, black onyx ring. Oh, love that. Thanks. Absolutely yeah. love that. that was such a detail from the, from the child. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the autocratic snap. Ugh. Love that, and Thanks. the broken analog. Those those just really stuck out to me. That just like you could just visualize. I could see just every little, every little snippet. So that oh, that's awesome. wonderful. Love I'm, that. I'm so glad. And you know, the funny thing is, uh, the last time, so that was the last time I had horrible, horrible root canal tooth pain. Yeah. Until uh, two weeks ago, in the middle of the pandemic, I had another <laughs> horrible root canal. I felt like my whole head was going to explode. It got infected, oh, no. and I was like, wow. Every time there's like a national tragedy, I get a root canal. So like, I hope my teeth are okay and then the country's yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> well, next yeah. time your teeth start hurting, you need to warn all of us. So I know because it's are aware something's coming. <laughs> exactly. I owe it to everybody to do that. I got to see the dentist more quickly. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Let me save the world. I'm gonna go to the dentist on a regular. Gotta basis. save the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. All right, so um, Andy was saying that there's a new format. There is a little question box that came up here. So a question came up. Oh, Andy was just saying that um, because he believes your writing is so phenomenal and how you wove everything together. He says, I'm throwing my laptop out the window. I'm stopping writing. He's on quitting. <laughs> oh, well, th thanks, Andy. But get, take your laptop back. Yeah, don't stop writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what would be cool? Write a poem about how you want to throw your laptop out the window, and then you'll that's have true. Poem. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh my goodness! So, um, you know, I think did you say that Blake was your favorite poet? I came in like a few seconds late on the very first section of the the first live, so I wasn't. He's one of my yeah. I've got a, a dear spot in my heart for William Blake. He's one of my favorites okay. for sure. I go back to him a lot yeah. to make me to remember like why I love poems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and you were going back through and you're, um, when you were reading um, Elise's uh, piece, and I believe that was the one she did in comparison with um, Emily Dickinson, because she, she, oh, yes. she references her a lot. And, yeah, she's a big um, Dickinson fan, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I love that and how you started to just talk about, you know, that, that even still with, um, you know, the change of the times that we saw so much. I mean, women had the right to vote and everything at that time, but there was still just such limitations, you know, um, on women and that she and that she could just feel that. And I remember one for me was always, I, I love Anais Nen. I, pro I know I don't probably say her name correctly. I never do, but I, I love her works. And I think that she was really, um, just really brazen, you know, when she came out and all of her writings and stuff, I think it just threw everyone, you know, to the wall when she, when she started writing about <laughs> all the yeah. different things that she wanted to write about. And, oh yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love that, you know, and for me, um, I, I just feel like I can relate to a lot of that. Um, I kept my writing very, very quiet. Um, I grew up in a very religious family and so when I started my page, I kept it on the down low because, you know, I, I utilize a lot of my pictures and things as well. My photography, um, which is a lot of self photography along with my poems. And um, so 
even though I have support of my family, a lot of my family don't read my things because <laughs> it bothers mm -hmm. them. But at least yeah. I have their support. Um, but yeah, I can, um, you know, I grew up with the whole, if there was anything that, let's say, um, especially nowadays, we see a lot of cases with, uh, with women who, you know, with um, like date rape scenarios or any type of, you know, altercation or, or abuse. And I remember growing up and hearing a lot in my household of, well, she shouldn't address that way. She was asking for it or, you know, th things along yep. those lines. And so it was a huge fear of mine to, to break free and say, oh, here's my writing family. <laughs> uh -huh. Look what I'm writing about. And, um, you know, and so I was just have been so excited about being able to do the, do this live and everything with you and just being able to bring Elise's works, you know, more to light and stuff. So it's been, this has just been absolutely phenomenal for me. So it's been awesome. Oh, this is great. No, and yeah. I, I know what you mean, that the family stuff, I mean, is uh, the great thing about, the thing that made me, um, of the many things I loved about editing Elise's book was that when I, um, when I had to get the rights from her family, because they yeah. owned the work, um, it was her, uh, um, I'm trying to think of what his exact, I think he's like her great nephew, um, uh, or maybe her, her second cousin, uh, who mm -hmm. runs the estate now, and through him and through other members, I met other members of the family that really supported her, that you don't really hear oh, about them in the histories. And yeah. so I, I'm really right. glad there's there's a part of her family that just always knew she was a great artist and wanted yeah. to work out there. So yeah. I was glad I was glad to see that part of her family because they're there and they 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 believe in in what yeah. she she wrote and and wish she would have been alive to see the poems in print. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and how, how amazing it is that you didn't have too much, uh, you know, uh, too much of them trying to block your way in doing so, that they allowed you to be able to do that. I'm really because, grateful that they didn't block, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. Her story is absolutely incredible. I, I really, really love it. I'm now, I'm gonna share, I'm gonna share somebody. All right, let's see, who am I gonna share? Who am I gonna share? I'm going to share uh, Molly. And so this is Molly, the Musings of Molly Maven is her handle. And um, this is called Bottles. And I have to say that everyone who participated in these prompts, they really, really did push themselves, you know, over, you know, above and beyond. And it was so fun for me to be able to read everyone's pieces. I was just like, you could tell, I was just like, they really, they dug deep. They went and expanded beyond what they normally do. and. Um, so all of these pieces that we get to share tonight, I have to say hats off to all of you guys. You guys are awesome. You're amazing. It's incredible. And I am honored to read your words. So this is Molly and it is called Bottles. Bottles, how they hold what we need inside, staring at that liquid courage, those numbing doses, my thoughts and their long goodbyes, glass, plastic, skin, break them, shake them, Give my soul the whole of what begs within, and I'll always remember the farewells of December. Rooms of black cloth crowding the remains of faded embers. I've walked these cold roads before. All the pebbles thrown at stones and bones under my feet, they lay in soiled doors, adorning bullet wounds, necktie tombs. Those breathless bound bodies, I will join them soon, missing sons of June, to wear the dirt that dances on mahogany. Oh, death, how you have kissed my lips. We fell in love, a tryst, 
that grips. I have shed many tears, given many years, but my better moments will just scratch at walls. Tongues split, mouths will spit. Only one second of my life to be recalled, and as I swallow my no tomorrow, the world turns despite such sorrow. So let them say all I was became this day, but I will count the petals plucked, the nights so tight, warm and tucked, the red blanket that burned him into me. The embrace that laced his charming charms to my heart's race, how we cried at the finish line, miles of smiles that were never mine. They belonged to a girl I once knew. But these dusty mirrors won't get much clearer. I'm now made of glass and it shatters blue. A bottle emptied, a covering coffin or dust confetti. I am nothing more and everything. With the smell of smoke on my last breath, I choke to sing the letters of words which welcome death, a parting note that spoke. Of all the reasons why I fasted hope, a taste these jaws would gladly soak, yet they hang there, unable to greet the stale air. Please know that I am home. As the sky pulls me to fly, I've woven my wings a refined magpie, no longer bottled by the tegument that ties some rest for the restless. This is why the dreamless die. That was Molly. Uh, that was great. Thanks, Ooh. Molly. Yeah. Yeah. And she wanted, um, you know, it's just about those questions of like, what would people think or say? Like, what would your story be after you passed? And, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, uh, uh, I love that in relation to here we are talking about Elise so many, so many years later, and yet she still lives on. She lives on in her words, and now she's continuing to almost have a rebirth, it seems, you know, just a, like a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I think is beautiful. I think it's incredible, so. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It's like, it feels like she, the more readers she gets, the more they're adding to the story who she is, and like you're saying about yes. about uh the last poem sense of molly's poem like okay what what's the story after i'm gone and that story gets rewritten yeah. by the readers and yeah uh, it just yeah. it's fantastic seeing like yeah. so many readers being drawn to her work it's but it happened yes. 50 years ago but it's great it's happening now yeah yeah i know i mean what is it the same with uh with with van gogh and uh <laughs> Yeah, you know, all those things that you rec recognize just uh, just far too late. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we recognize yeah. still. <laughs> but still recognized, yeah. Yes, yes. So I almost feel like today, you know, with the beatnik generation being so um, being so vocal and being so bold, um, you know, here we are and what we're faced with, you know, I mean, especially these past few months with, um, you know, with the COVID and now, you know, with everything that's going on with George Floyd. And, um, and here we are, and it's time again for, for definitely for us to utilize the power that we have and to utilize it in, in the correct format. And we, we can use it, you know, do that by using our words and being powerful and being strong and coming together and raising awareness in such a positive and supportive light. And so I almost feel like, you know, this is us coming together. So it's very, very, um, I think it's just very, very powerful that we're all here, you know, doing this today. I think it's really huge. I agree. I mean, it's like when I think of... Um what got us to the horrible place we're in now, I mean, uh, uh, is obviously like bigotry, but also just a failure of the imagination. It's just like the leadership, just like not having any kind of like creative effort to build a, a just world. It takes imagination. And so 
Yeah. When you bring artists, writers, poets together, this is where you've got like this, uh, you know, this boiling pot of imaginative yes. energy. And we need more of that to build a better world, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I would love to hear another one of yours. Okay, so I could, maybe I'll read, I'll read one more Dark Shadows piece and then maybe yeah. later just, I'll read one that's not a Dark Shadows. Uh, yeah, that would be great. Poem. So I'm gonna read, so I was trying to think of something that was from, not from the new book, one of the earlier books. And um, I thought of this little excerpt, it's from book one. Um, uh, and that one's, that one's just called The Complete Dark Shadows of My Childhood. Um, and- um, uh, No so worries, no worries. So there's a little, little David and he's got psychic powers, so I'm a child. And um, he's been okay. hiding from the vampire in a mausoleum. And then um, that character I mentioned in the last poem, Joe, he comes back and his, uh, the actor's name is Joel Crothers and he, he plays a role in it too. Okay. Uh, okay, so here we go. So little David's running out of the mausoleum. Little David escapes, then runs straight into the arms of Barnabas, proving no child is safe in Collinsport and no doubt spawning nightmares for little boys watching this episode. David, you're acting as though you're afraid of me, Barnabas says, sticking out his wolf's head cane to block the psychic child from running away. The same cane that broke my bedroom window in nightmares. Then later, right before the credits roll, Barnabas's parting words, a hypnotic message sent psychically across the Collinwood estate. Pleasant dreams, Barnabas says in cruel, sarcastic voiceover. After following little David's mausoleum plight so closely for six episodes, I couldn't resist looking him up on Wikipedia to see what became of actor David Hennessy, fearing yet another sad tale of a child star who grows up to be a shoplifter or an addict Though, can he really be called a star when he forgets his lines so much? Then I got distracted and looked up Joe instead, the too articulate paragon of bourgeois Collinsport who looks like the high school football star and student council president who volunteers for Vietnam after graduation. And I discovered actor Joe Others died of AIDS in 1985, two years before the drug AZT. And he was only 44, not much younger than another Joe. We called him Jojo, my favorite uncle, who contracted HIV in Los Angeles and moved back to Erie, Pennsylvania to die in 1991, surrounded mostly by mean-spirited Italians who could not bring themselves to utter the word gay. Mm. I say mostly because I remember my mother spent every day with him in the hospital at the end, though she told anyone outside the family tribe it was cancer. And she took mm. care of Jojo, her little brother, born deaf and mute, like she did when she was a teenager and the rest of the family and that awful immigrant paranoia of the time, World War II and half the neighborhood supported Mussolini until the US declared war on Italy. 
treated the little boy's inability to hear or speak as an embarrassing aberration, a shame to the clan. My mother, who once asked me to write a poem about the night Jojo broke from a deep coma and sat up straight and stared at the hospital ceiling like he'd tear it up, burn the fucker down. It was always silent with Jojo in a family that never learned to sign. But he raised his arms and he spoke. First time anyone ever heard words come out of his mouth. When, he asked over and over, then smiled and lay back down to die. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That is powerful. That is absolutely incredible. How I, I'm still just blown away at the fact that you went in to research one actor and the connection between that, you know, here you are, you're writing the story, you're, you're writing, you know, your, your memoirs basically in, in relation to this. And you learn about this actor who passed away from AIDS. And then the fact that with your, with your own uncle, I mean, that is just, that's just wow. That's mind blowing. Uh, thanks, and it's really I appreciate I, I appreciate your response because it's very intense to read. Like I, I was yeah. I decided you know a couple days ago. Oh yeah, I'm gonna read this, and then in the middle of reading it, I'm like, oh shit, I'm reading this. This is so intense. Yeah, um, yeah. I tried to write about that night with JoJo. I tried to write about it for like ten years. Mm -hmm. I kept getting nowhere. I just couldn't get it right. And yeah. then it was it was the con the context of the Dark Shadows project that just yeah. happened. So I'm grateful wow. for that too. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And to be able to give such tribute, you know, in your story, uh, it's just it all came together. I mean, how, how you couldn't have asked for it to come together like so much. I mean, any better than that? I mean, it. Oh, just, thank you, thank you. It um, felt right as it was happening. I was like, I want to yes. run with this, and yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. All right, looks like there are, are there a couple more questions. Oh, and Mel was saying that Blake is her absolute favorite as well. And, right. uh, and Andy was saying that Elise would be proud. So. Oh, that's, <laughs> thank you. That's very sweet. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, a lot of us here, you know, we are, we are not, you know, we're not published, you know, published poets or, or anything. And so, um, of course, you know, a, a lot of us tend to like lean towards more of, um, you know, self-publication because, you know, the poetry world, the writing world in general, it's just so oversaturated, saturated. I mean, it's just, it's just in there and it's hard to get recognized. Obviously we know, I mean, to be published is an incredible feat. And so, um, for all of, so for so many, you have 12, 12 books published. 12, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, that's Thank just amazing. You, you know, it's Thank incredible. incredible. <laughs> now, when you look at, um, now, how do you feel about self-publication? Um, you know, I think, um, I think, it, you know, it, it depends on what you want with your, mm -hmm. uh, depends on what you want with your poems. Like if you, mm -hmm. I, I know folks who will self-publish because they, they want to perform their work at readings and they want something to give to people, sell to people at readings. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter to them whether an editor published it. Mm -hmm. Longer term career though, I, 
like I try to tell my students not to self-publish, not because there's anything mm -hmm. wrong with self-publishing, but just because if your work has gone through an outside editor who doesn't know you and they've published mm -hmm. your work, it's going to have a little more authority in the poetry world. And I always want my students to have that authority. I want people yeah. to listen to them. You yeah, know? Um, absolutely. So it really depends on what you want. Like if you, if you want a lot, you know, think of the career in terms of print and performance and like, um, you know, how people are going to look at it long term. I would say try mm -hmm. to not self-publish, even though it takes longer to get your work published that way, without a doubt. Right, and right. Editors, a lot of editors are really nice, but a lot of them are really cranky, you know, but um, yeah, yeah. But if you're thinking like my friends, who, you know, it's like me as a musician um, with Drumming on Glass, we had a record company, we had a record deal, we had a contract, all that. But the bands I've been in since then, Bummer Deluxe, my current band, Pet Theories, my older band, you know, we, we self, um, self-financed our CDs because we want to perform and we want people yeah. to buy it or give away the work. We just want people to hear right. it. And, and so we're self-publishing right. our music and that's yes. fantastic. Yeah. 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 So it really is just like what, like you said, like what you're looking for, like how, what you, how want, you want your yeah. voice to be heard. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. How you want, that's what kind of audience you want, how you want to speak to them and so on. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Definitely. Um, so let's see i have because I, I have a few more to read and so i sorry i always do like a sing song like response that's just uh, everyone's used to it by now but <laughs> i apologize for <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all righty i'm actually going to read i'm going to read jared's and so this is jared presser and so this is uh forget it underscore 42 and he actually just posted this one today and uh you know again very very relevant with what's happening in the world today so um pretty pretty powerful and this is called believe struggling to gain my footing when i live in a world that's bleeding can't put faith in a loving god who committed the first act of racism i try to find that space in life where peace can be found even in a handout society there's no peace around I can't reflect back as a kid when things seem simpler because hate has been happening since Lucifer betrayed his father. We all have our struggles. Life was never meant to be easy. We're all just chasing cheese in the maze of society. When the media gives us stories to fuel our anger, we need a worldwide Woodstock to bring us all back together. We shouldn't see color. We shouldn't see poor. We should never turn our backs and care a whole lot more. Just strive to be different and stand for what's right. Judgment should never be passed based on black or white. He had a dream and I have a dream too, but the world gives us dreams with a nightmare view. Black, white, or brown, it's all the same. Don't let the media destroy us by segregating our names. The hurt in people is not based on color. It's based on the hate that's been passed down from generations of fathers. We have the power of generations within our voices, but we allow ourselves to be muted by controversial media stories. For generations now, this hate has been real, but let's become the generation that starts to heal. It will never be erased, but always exist. That's what we're told. Let's just give our children a chance to know the difference. Let's give them more. Show stories of love and us picking up our brothers. Let's find the solution by blending all colors. There's no equality when hate is the leader. There's no hope in a future when evil controls all the power. Don't put faith and hope in what they tell you to believe. Put love and trust in the change that we need. 
God is there, God may care, but if God is teaching us a lesson, then that God is not fair. What kind of father would mark his son so people would know exactly what he's done? Don't pass judgment is a commandment. We're taught that God gives power to the wicked and unjust. I'm struggling to find my footing within my worldly eyes. That's why I close them and dream that change is alive. That my faith is wavering in anything that saves. There's no one who can change this but people who are brave. Who can fight hate with love and not retaliation as the powerful sit back and encourage us to destroy each other? It's what they want and they know all along if they feed us with fire, we'll continue to burn. Must rock the boat and change the system, replace hate with love and leave an impression. Don't close our eyes to the hate and injustice. Let's just change the script and show them we got this. You want us to riot and hate our brothers? Well, I'll stand to defiance next to each other every heart because our hearts beat the same color. Let justice be served upon those who feel hate. Just don't let justice be served by those of deceit. God and media, government of states, those who strike fear because their blood pumps hate. Stop with the hate and give us a chance. Let love replace all these hurtful circumstances. Mm. Oh, that was Jared. great. That was Jared? Yeah, that's Jared. That's uh, forget it underscore 42. And he just oh, that posted was... that today. Um, so he's, he's amazing. Absolutely incredible writer. I mean, that I think is just so, I mean, he hit every single point. <laughs> in no, that that one. was great. Thanks, Jared. Yeah. There yeah. was that line that really got me. I had to write it down. Uh, the yeah. world gives us dreams with a nightmare view. And I felt like the whole poem was just sort of like, like, uh, that was like the magnet attracting everything in the poem. It was really yes. great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was an, it was absolutely incredible. He did he did a phenomenal phenomenal job job with that. And totally absolutely. relevant to where we are right now. Yeah, <laughs> totally relevant. I know yeah. I was uh, talking with my daughter today, and we were just talking about the sadness of of the riots because we've had peaceful protests here, and mm -hmm. um, they've been very very peaceful. And um, you know, and there is so much power within words. And it's it. We were just talking about how sad it is because it diminishes the power of words when all we're seeing all of our media is the act of violence. And there's so much, there is so much beauty actually going on right now um, in, you know, in support of, you know, George Floyd and his family and in support of, you know, the African-American community. And unfortunately, our, our media is just being so focused on the negativity. And, um, you know, there are some very powerful movements happening out there. Yeah, I'd say that the, I def, definitely like the most the most powerful images I've seen of people coming together in the protests mm. have been mm. images I've had to see on Twitter and on Instagram. I haven't mm -hmm. been seeing in, them in mainstream. You know, they, they don't sell advertising like right. images of bricks for windows. You know. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's 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 very it feels very similar to, you know, when we have to unfortunately have to experience the tra tragedies of like the school shootings, when the focus all of a sudden becomes on the shooter rather than the amount of lives and how it affects those, um, you know, yeah, that have had to endure it. Um, you know, we just, you know, we need to spread positivity. We need to spread yeah. Positive voices that it is doing something. <laughs> I mean, we're here. Are trying to come together. Yeah. Exactly, and change does. Unfortunately, change does take a while. It, yeah. We have to be patient. We have to be patient, and um, you know, as a society, as a nation, we have really. There are a lot of things we have done as a nation that we should be <laughs> proud of. You know, that we have come together to be able to do. And it's just unfortunate that 
you know, the negativity is just weighing down so much right now. But yeah, the negativity sells sadly. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. 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 Well, how is that? So now are you guys all like an, an, an online program now for your, you know, for your, uh, for your college, for your school? Well, we're online um, starting when Chicago went into quarantine around March, mm -hmm. mid-March, we went online. Yeah. And um, right now the plan is to be in person in the fall. Oh. And okay. if that happens, I'd rather be in person because I, I just, I like, yeah. to, you know, see people, you know, in, in, in yeah. person. But, you know, we're, we're being asked to just, you know, keep, have a plan B in case we have to go online. And who knows, I yeah. mean, if we get a giant surge of the virus in a month or so, we might have to be online. So we all kind of have to wait and yeah. see. Right. Yeah. I believe that for here, um, Chico State and um, our JC, that they're going to go on ahead and just stick with the online program just for the fall. And so fall, they're like, yeah. we're just going to go ahead. Yeah. And they're like, we're just going to continue on with it. So, um, you know, I mean, shoot, all we did was we were doing really, really well. And then Memorial Day weekend came and we opened up our, um, our county and we ended up getting, we ended up doubling our cases like in three days. <laughs> so that was a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Chicago officially opens up in two days and oh. I don't know. Oh. We'll see. I have a feeling we're going to get a lot of cases. I hope we don't, but I have a feeling we are. I know. I know. I hope I hopefully hopefully it just starts curving going away. <laughs> I know. I All know. right. And um, you wanted to read something else? Sure. In fact, since we're talking about um, the quarantine and the pandemic. Um, yeah, I have a this is probably my newest poem. And um, it's uh, it's a standalone non dark shadows poem. Um, and it's really Yeah, it's about uh, really the, the day that um, the day that the governor of Illinois said uh, we're going into quarantine. And it's awesome. called, At Three O'Clock, The Governor Speaks. Mm. We're all about to learn the difference between solitude and loneliness. When you're not alone by choice, time passes in one slow, interminable slab, anxiously ongoing. My bandmate, Luke, texts, to warn me the governor is speaking at three o'clock to announce a statewide lockdown order. He adds a video his friend shot on her phone, a railway flat car carrying a fleet of desert camouflaged military Humvees into Chicago. Mm. What needs to fall apart before they roll down Sheridan Road? Mm. It's 1.30 and I'm not sure how much of the city is going dark or how long this will last. Time enough to walk to the liquor store before we're ordered to quarantine. Just a person on the sidewalk, a man coming out of CVS with toilet paper. Time enough for a pandemic detour. They've been sold out the past two weeks. I buy a package of 12, two rolls of paper towels, a bottle of dish detergent. The shelves for Clorox spray and Lysol wipes are empty, as I expected. I had to check anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm wearing winter gloves all wash when I return home. Possibly carry all this plus alcohol. So I skip <laughs> the liquor store. Embarrassed, walking home, a toilet paper 12 plaque under my arm, way too big for my bag. These are built for congregation. Chicago is shutting down. 
My friends used to correct me when I said plague instead of pandemic. Now we all say self-isolation as well any of it. Rikers Island, its infection rate eight times higher than New York, the country's plague epicenter, is offering convicts $6 per hour to dig mass graves. Average US prison wage, barely a dollar an hour. The day 1,300 Americans tested positive, the president who called it a hoax said, just stay calm, it will go away. 6,000 new cases today alone, a week and a half later. Supermarket panic buying is already a habit. How quickly we adapt. The first time I saw bare grocery shelves, I was 20, working a sleep-deprived third shift at Giant Eagle. The shrill fluorescent Muzak, a theater of abundance every morning by 9 a.m. when my shift was over and I'd stock the store again and packages of food. My parents, first-generation immigrants, prepared me for an off-script, improvised deus ex machina that could arise anytime and make it all vanish. My father didn't see a flush toilet until he was drafted into World War II. I didn't believe him. We'll know more at three o'clock. Every, every time I hear someone say lockdown, I wince. Our streets already are nearly vacant. The pavement scorched without people walking on it. We're learning it's possible to run out of anything. Hmm. Wow. I love how you even started off with um, like the solitude versus the loneliness. That, that to me is really, really fascinating because, you know, here we are and we have to, you know, like even how you reference self-isolation, but it's really, it's really not a choice. This really isn't an option. This is what we have to do, you know, during this time. And so, boy, yeah, solitude and loneliness, completely different things, completely yeah. different things. <laughs> yeah, they're like, they're crash landing on all of us these days. I know, <laughs> more than ever. Yeah. They are, they are like huge. I mean, man, I mean, we, we dealt with loneliness prior and we felt alone before. And now to add in, you know, the solitude and the isolation, it's just, it's just a ticking time bomb. I mean, if anything, I think so. the riots and everything that we're expecting, it's just, it's just, it, I feel like it's almost even more fueled and more on fire because of what we've been coming out of you know, um, that everyone is just so, so on the edge where we all seem to be so nervous. We all seem to be filled with fear left and right and unknown. You don't really have any answers. I mean, right. it's pretty, pretty scary. And it's, and the, the whole, the virus is like this invisible invader and we've got that. And then we've got, uh, uh racism and, yeah. and, and economic oppression. It's just like, man, I, yeah, it's, we'll get through it. What's the world, the world is, lot. yeah, the world is burning. burning. <laughs> the world is burning. The world is on yeah. fire. <laughs> yeah. I have a piece here by Twinks. And um, so this is Twinks Fly and it is called um, Trash. And I love how she, how her setup is of, you know, of, of how she, he, she did her formatting on her piece. And so this is Twinks. It's the first week of June. Sun is raining flowers today, purple, blue, violet, aquamarine, and all of them burn as she wriggles back home in shame. 
scalding her skin off, charring her flesh to bare bones, bones that are tired of carrying the weight of her frail body. Questioning, is she anything more but a plastic toy meant for pleasure? Succumbing to her rightful place with the dust choking on the ground, with the maggots choking on the ground, cursing her breasts, choking on the ground. It's the first week of June and all the blossoming flowers adorned in a bouquet of acceptable consume her in a gulp alive. And all her burnt pieces are left in a trash can on the sidewalk with the burnt cigarettes they smoked for another high. Mm. These twinks fly. Oh, twinks, that was great. Yeah, wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that, like, it's kind of like what we were just talking about. It's like, it's June, everything's blossoming, but yeah, everything's under assault. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And I, I, I think it's just, it's just hard for us to even, you know, it's just hard to accept and even swallow. It's like, is this really, really happening? You know, I mean, I, I'm so, I'm a little bit far more removed from it than so many. Um, you know, I, it, like, I'm sure you are witnessing, like, it's, it's there. You're, you're seeing a lot of, you know, the riots and different things. And for me, you being up in Northern California, smaller town, you know, and we're a little bit more subdued. I mean, even with the COVID, you know, I mean, mm, uh, no, this is true, a whole, right. the, yeah, the way that I'm seeing it is so different than your guys' viewpoints. And so it's been very, it's been very interesting to sit back and see it all play out on screen for me, per se. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so. I can imagine. But, and then I have family down in L.A., and we were just talking with them last night, and, you know, and I mean, they're terrified, you know, they're oh, terrified. I, I mean, my cousin, he's just like, this is happening two blocks, you know, from my home, <laughs> you know, and it's just um, unfortunate that something that was supposed to start out as peaceful and positive and impactful is, you know, it's taken the turn that it has, so. But yeah. it is just an interesting time, but yeah, I've, I've yeah. been, I've been definitely set back from it, so. It's been different for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I have to remember sometimes that if you're not living in a densely packed area, you're going to experience the pandemic differently. Because like mm -hmm. in Chicago, it's just you know we're we're all packed together, and and God, you yeah. got to go out, but you got to be really yeah. careful. Uh, when I go for my walk, I'll have a mask on, and and uh, yeah, hope I hope everyone else will. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> You're pretty... like, I'm protecting me. You protect yourself too. We protect each other. Yeah, can we all just do that? <laughs> I know, and it's it's like it's, it's serious stuff because we're 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 uh, we're yeah. in such con so close contact with each other in a city. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, it looks like yeah. it's going to be ticking down. I have two minutes left. I know I have Mel's piece and. Um, I'm not going to worry about my piece right now because we're going to be ending, but I do want to read Mel's piece because she submitted for it. And so I'm going to read hers. So this is the, um, the.saint.atlas. And this is Mel. There are flowers blooming, dead, lacking, lifeblood, before air is tasted. Cries feed the roots souls nourishing the heart of palms covered in dirt, fingers broken from digging, 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 burying hope before he was ever 
given a chance to. Mm, wow. Well, Mel, that was intense. Thanks. Wow. Yeah. Another perfect, perfect <laughs> yeah. where we are right now, right? Wow. wow. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it was, uh, it was absolutely incredible. And yeah, it's ticking down. I got 50, 50 seconds left, but, oh. um, yeah, I know. I know. It's like our time, our time went over. So it really <laughs> went fast. Went wow. Yeah. I know yeah. it went like so fast. It went yeah. so fast, but, um, but yeah, so I am going to, I'm going to DM you my piece just because I want to share it with Please you. Please do. So. I was going to say that. I'd love to see it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I will definitely, I'll definitely cool. uh, send it your way. Thank you guys, everyone for joining us and for letting us read your beautiful, glorious pieces. And um, thank you, Tony, for just being here and sharing and giving us awareness to Elise and the Beatnik generation and for us being a little bit more familiar with you. So it's been oh. absolutely a pleasure. It was a lot yeah. of fun. Thanks for having me. This was great. It was so great. Yeah. It was awesome. All right. Thank All right. you. Have a All good right, night. Everyone. You All too. Right. You bye too. Bye.